You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to the conservative conscience here at Conservative Review's Northern Command. And it is another exciting week here, Monday, April 8th. And I am telling you, this is pretty unbelievable. I figured the week would start slow, my body's slow. I'm all aching from digging around. I I did uh, all the trenching work in my uh, front yard. Didn't get to do the mulching, but I'm all Charlie horse, played baseball all day with the kids too. And I'm just, I'm so slow. But we're recording a little earlier today in the morning because we have a busy media day and things are very fluid. Usually, you know, you could count on doing a show later on Monday because it takes a while for the news cycle to heat up for the week but oh my gosh has this week just started off with a flash it's unbelievable it is quite unbelievable so obviously i didn't even mean to talk about this today but i think it fits in well with our theme of conservatives always having dangled in front of them some nice things on a string And we reach out to grab it, and it gets yanked away. We can never have nice things. You know it's a line I keep using over and over again, and it's so true. So late yesterday, I barely looked at the news on Sunday. You know, all week, I'm just emotionally, mentally drained from doing this. Saturday, I rest. Sunday, I exert myself physically, usually just doing all sorts of physical work. And then Monday, we get get back into it, start the cycle again. So I try not to work too much on Sundays because there was a time I I never stopped working and it just was crazy. But anyway, late Sunday, I saw Kirsten Nielsen resigned as DHS secretary. I'm I'm sure you've all heard at this point. Now, this was long overdue. I mean long overdue. This is a person who under her stewardship... Illegal immigration has gone up literally every single month consecutively, month over month, under her tenure. As you well know, I never supported General Kelly despite his military career. He was not a conservative. Kirsten Nielsen was his hand-picked successor when he became chief of staff. And right away we saw an opportunity. But right away that was yanked away from us when Trump went and appointed Kevin McAleenan, the current CBP director, as acting DHS secretary. Now, I think the job for conservatives in the coming days is to make it clear to the president that the same reason you had enough with Kirsten Nielsen, well, that applies to Kevin McAleenan as well. He, he, he was head of CBP, which runs Border Patrol. They are part of the same mentality. They refuse to stand up for our sovereignty at all. And by the way, obviously this is all aggravated by the fact that 
already late Friday. This was after we got off the air, so we didn't get a chance to talk about this together. But let's just roll this all into one thing. Trump's nominee for ICE director, Vitello, he was acting ICE director, and he was going to nominate him to be the actual ICE director. He pulled the nomination. Um, I do not have any more insight than you do. What you see in the media is what I think is true, that Stephen Miller said this is ridiculous. I mean, none of these guys are tough enough. So the media is just, they're obsessed with Stephen Miller, by the way. Obsessed with him. It's like 1984. I mean, it's like the, the two minutes hate. But good for him. I'm glad he at least had a say in that. But the point is, we are at a crossroads here. In general, we're at a crossroads as a nation. The fact that, until now, we have countenanced this notion that we no longer have sovereignty. That anyone who wants could just come in and we have to bring them in. We've never done that in our history. And again, we've had the same statutes in place since 1952. They just got stronger as of 1996. So there's no reason for this. So really... Really, this is a time to replace the person at, t- at the top, DHS secretary, as well as the two most important positions under that, CBP director and ICE director. So we need to make it clear to Trump that McAleenan should only be acting ICE director as a transition, but should not stay there, and then that will open up Really, he should be gone. He shouldn't go back to CBP. That will open up all three positions. Now, normally you'd say, look, it's terrible to have such tumult and uncertainty at a time of a a border invasion like this. But again, at the end of the day, Jared Kushner is running the show anyway. So until we have someone as DHS secretary that's going to have the president's trust and is going to be able to override Kushner, there's not much we can do. Mr. Inspector Gadget there. I mean, he this guy knows from everything. There's no issue he doesn't know from. So anyway, we start the week with an interesting opportunity here. Now, many of you are going to want to know, well, who should fill these positions? The ones that come to mind off the top of my head, obviously, the number one, if you believe in sovereignty, is always going to be Chris Kobach. Okay, he was... Um, University of Missouri uh, constitutional law professor. He's fought in the courts on immigration for years. And most recently, he was Kansas Secretary of State. He did lose his bid for governor there. But there is nobody who knows immigration law better than he does and understands the mechanics of the issue as a matter of policy. So, look, I take him for any of the three positions. With that said, I am just telling you, it just will not happen. It is just, you can't go from zero to 101 shot, unfortunately, and half the Republicans would adamantly vote against him because they're a bunch of cowards and open borders folks. So, I look, you know, I'd take him, I'd advocate for him. I'm just telling you, you know, it's not going to happen. There's three other people that come to mind 
they are both either personal friends or acquaintances of mine. So it's a little touchy here. If you remember, Mark Morgan has been on the show a couple of times, delivered a terrific testimony before the Senate Homeland Security Committee last week about our nation being at a crossroads, about what we need to do on this issue. As you all know, he was a career FBI official, um, worked in El Paso FBI, so he also had experience with the border, and then he became Border Patrol Chief in 2016. I think he could be good for all any of the three positions. I, he, I doubt he would ever be considered as DHS secretary for a number of reasons, but either ICE or CBP director, personally, I think he, he would rather be ICE director. Um, but he would be, he would be good. Uh, we talk all the time. He gets it. Through him, I came to know Tom Homan, who was ICE director before under, under Obama. Um, he's actually a good guy. Again, I think he could be a possible contender for DHS secretary. I know Trump likes him a lot. The other person that comes to mind is Ken Cuccinelli, former attorney general of Virginia. He's also a personal friend of mine. I just spoke with him last week. Um, obviously, as you well know, I disagree strongly with him on jailbreak, but that, you know, that he's not going to be attorney general here. This is DHS secretary. One of these days I got to talk him out of that. But the thing about Ken is Ken gets the courts. Ken totally understands the issue with the courts. And as all of you know, the antecedent to this entire problem is the judiciary. It's these court decisions that cause this entire problem. So he is a guy that is very committed to pushing back against the courts. Remember, nothing matters on immigration until you push back against the courts. Later this week, I'm going to come out with my official plan. I'm going to post it at Conservative Review as one of my in the form of one of my columns. Send it out to the people I know in the White House. Do media on it. We'll see what happens. Deter, defend, demagnetize. Three stages, about 10 different ideas. Most of them you've heard before already. We're just going to put it together in one piece. But again, remember, anything that will help to deter, defend, or demagnetize our border, the courts will screw with. That is just a reality. So we need to be prepared, and we need someone, and again, Cuccinelli is a career legal guy who is willing to stand up and say, no, 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 you do not have that authority. Universal injunctions in general are unconstitutional, especially by a district judge. Forum shopping is purely political, and that's not legal. Specifically, as it relates to immigration, you are violating your own branch's long-standing precedent and case law. You're violating statute. You're violating the Constitution. Here is what we're doing. There is no shortcut to that. So that's briefly where we stand now with that. We're going to talk about that more as this week develops. But speaking of the courts, I want to get back to the courts, and maybe we'll come back to immigration again. But we got to speak about the courts because there is 
there's a couple of important new developments I want to talk about that, again, ties back into this entire issue and also our thesis today of every time conservatives focus and drain their political capital on this, ooh, this juicy piece of steak just being dangled in front of them, it gets yanked away because we don't know how to lock down victories. We don't know how to secure victories because, frankly, we don't know what a victory is because we don't know what conservatism is anymore. So we'll go and latch on to different people or policies that aren't even conservative, and we'll champion them as our own. As you all know, I I patented this, pun intended, the reverse patent. I call it the reverse patent. As you all know, they always say in the name of... General Patton, that he used to say the object of war is not for you to die for your country, is to make the other SOB die for his country. So conservatives in politics tend to flip that on its head. We like to die for the other SOB's gutter ideology. We never die on our own hills. So we spent the entire last fall fighting for what? What was the closing argument before the election, if you remember? Number one was jailbreak, criminal justice reform, where we threw out 50 years of conservatism on being tough on crime, and we allowed Jared freaking Kushner to completely countermand one of our most sacred but also popular issues in our portfolio, law and order. But what was the other thing we did? Kavanaugh. Right, The entire closing argument of the 2018 midterm elections was on Kavanaugh. Now, look, we all understand that he was unfairly accused. I, I, I don't blame people for defending him. But all the while, we, we, even before the accusations came out, we said, look, the guy's not a conservative. He just isn't. He's a nice guy. God bless him. He's just not one of us. He's Karl Rove in a, in a robe. I mean, you know, let, let's say you have Mitt Romney, you know, be, get, get nominated for the Supreme Court. And, you know, someone accuses him of something. Well, I mean, th- 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 that's lovely, but that doesn't make him a conservative, just the fact that we have to defend him. It's the same thing here. There's a great USA Today article out today on how conservatives made a golden calf, the ultimate golden calf, out of Brett Kavanaugh. And in the end, boy, oh boy, were we disappointed. You heard it here first. You guys know you heard it here first. And and also, Mark Levin, if you remember at the time, this was before the allegations came out about him, false allegations. He said, look, this guy is just not a conservative. He's the quintessential Washington insider. So there's a column today, or an article, Conservatives Takeover of Supreme Court, stalled by John Roberts, Brett Kavanaugh, bromance. The conservative takeover of the Supreme Court that was anticipated following Donald Trump's two selections has been stalled by a budding bromance between the senior 
and junior justices. Chief Justice John Roberts and the court's newest member, Brett Kavanaugh, have voted in tandem on nearly every case that's come before them since Kavanaugh joined the court in October. They've been more likely to side with the court's liberal justices than its other conservatives. The two justices, both alumni of the same District of Columbia-based federal appeals court, have split publicly only once in 25 official decisions. Their partnership has extended, though less reliably, to orders the court has issued on abortion funding, immigration, and the death penalty in the six months since Kavanaugh's bitter Senate confirmation battle ended in a 50-48 vote. This is really bad. Remember how all those people were like, yeah, wait until Kavanaugh gets on the court. He's really going to stick it to the left. I was like, no, he's going to go out of his way to signal to these people that he wants to get back in their good graces. Not that he was ever conservative, but I argued he'd be even worse. I think we were proven right. But let's continue further here in this uh, USA Today article, which we will post in show notes today. Justice Kavanaugh seems to share some of the Chief Justice's institutional concerns, but I think he also cares about his own perception as an even-handed judge, said Amir Ali, a civil rights lawyer who won a 6-3 decision in February when Roberts and Kavanaugh joined the four liberal justices to uphold a criminal defendant's appeals rights. I don't remember that case, by the way, um, offhand. <coughs> Maybe some of you do. Um, similarities between the two men are striking. Despite their decade apart in age, Robert 64 is earnest and soft-spoken, but pointed in his questions to both sides during oral arguments. Kavanaugh 54 is more demonstrative, but he tempers that with an inquisitive, open-minded manner. And then they just go on to note how, um, you know, examples of them joining with the left includes the court's action last October, giving those challenging a citizenship question in the 2020 census. Access to additional information about the plan. Could you imagine that? Rather than just straight up staying the injunctions of the lower courts on an absurd lawsuit against the Department of Commerce saying that they cannot even ask whether you're a citizen. Keep in mind the administration is not taking illegal immigrants out of the census, which they should. Just merely just documenting the numbers. It was literally a question on the census pretty much since our founding until the 1950s. But our legacy, our history, our traditions are unconstitutional. Another case was the Supreme Court's refusal in December to consider Republican-led states' efforts to defund Planned Parenthood. And it's ruling in February that Texas cannot execute a prisoner who claims to have an intellectual disability. In all three of those actions, Associate Justice Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch dissented. Associate Justice Samuel Alito made known his opposition in two of them. Roberts and Kavanaugh appear to have voted with the court's liberals, though the breakdown was not made public. So there you have that. Very, very concerning. Very concerning. But here it is. We sat and we fought for this piece of steak that we thought we'd get. And it gets yanked away from us. And instead, you get nothing but a bland veggie in its place. 
So as I warned you, aside from the fact that the lower courts are more radical than ever, most of them at least, and certainly the ones that the liberals are going to go to and they control the arc of litigation, but the Supreme Court is not really that conservative at all. And then I'm getting a little concerned, as you all know, about Alito. Everyone seems to have drifted. Everyone drifts when they're on the courts. Really, um, Scalia and Thomas are the only ones that never drifted. You know, they kind of were always the same. Everyone else, even Rehnquist, drifts. Drifted, at least. And, and that, that's my fear. That Alito is very much like a Rehnquist. He's not an originalist. He's a judicial conservative in some ways. And sometimes he could be very good. On criminal law, he's very good. But I will tell you, I am very concerned. That leads me to the next thing. We're just going to clear the decks of some of the things we didn't speak about on Friday that I wanted to get to. Late Friday, the Supreme Court officially denied the final request, final round of appeals of gun owners, gun rights groups, to put an injunction on President Trump's illegal, retroactive, ex post facto ban of bump stocks. People who outfit their semi-automatic, semi-auto rifles, not automatic rifles, but semi-auto rifles with bump stocks. Now, again, I've never used a bump stock in my life. I, I'm a little embarrassed. I never heard of it until um, they started talking about it after the Vegas shooting because, of course, the biggest deal detail to take out of the biggest mass shooting that we don't even understand the motives and how many people were involved and who was behind it, but bump stocks. That's all we care about. But anyway, of all the things this administration did, most of them, most of his executive actions merely are countermanding Obama actions. Sometimes they are somewhat new, but they're new in the sense that they're restoring Baseline statues, for for example, the president moved the um, Israel embassy to Jerusalem. That was part of the base statute of 1996. It was the other administrations that relied on the waiver authority, and they really kind of abused it. So all the things he's done as president, really he has followed the law. This one he did not. The important thing is not so much the bump stocks. It's the fact that you are taking an item – that was legally purchased and then retroactively banning it under the statute that bans machine guns without a special class three license. And then it makes them retroactive felons. So it violates ex post facto. It violates the takings clause of the fifth amendment because you're taking property without due process. And it might violate the second amendment as well. And certainly it violates statute. President, I mean, this would be true if Congress did it. The president did, it, you know, did it unilaterally, and of course, this is the one thing that the courts don't enjoin. Now, I've said this before: the role of a court obviously is to settle disputes under the law. Microsoft v. IBM. I have a fight with my neighbor. If it's a state law issue, state court. If it's a federal law issue, it goes to federal court. The problem now is that. Every public policy issue – see, let's say I have a dispute with the government, with one of the branches of government. 
I don't oppose the notion that in some circumstances you could have proper standing and a real right at stake, and you have the right to go to court and say, look, I believe this policy is either that the executive branch is promulgating is not pursuant to statute passed by Congress, or I believe the statute itself passed by Congress or a state legislature is completely unconstitutional. But the notion that a court could veto a policy or a law in the abstract and strike it down or that they are the sole and final arbiter of a political question is just not true. But anyway, these are this is one of those circumstances that is quintessentially the right of an individual to go to court and say, look, you are retroactively making me a class three felon. And class two, actually, punishable for... Uh, with up to 10 years in prison. And in this case, it's not even like you're, you know, you're asking the Supreme Court to say it's unconstitutional. You're just saying the, you know, saying the statute, the policy is uh, outside of statute. Now, not even, I'm not asking for a universal injunction. Just those plaintiffs and that anyone that is um, harmed by it could go to court. Again, this is quintessentially the role of the court. Not to set policy, but in terms of if you want to criminalize my behavior, well, look, you're making it a federal crime, right? That's what the Trump administration is doing. The governing statute is a federal statute. So I have a right to go to a federal court if you're going to criminalize me. And I say, I just don't want to be criminalized. It's not really striking down the policy. Like I said, I mean, I believe it is unconstitutional. We should fight it, but not because a court says so. But I do think it is, I, I do have a right to go to a court and say, look, you know, anyway, a judge is going to have to sentence me pursuant to a violation of that law or that edict in this case. So this is where it's emphatically the role of the judiciary to say, look, for our purposes, not for everyone else's purposes. It's not universally binding on non-plaintiffs, and it's not self-executing for the other branches of government. But if you're going to come before the judicial branch, we're going to say that, look, you didn't do anything wrong. You're following the law. You're following the Constitution. You lawfully purchased that. We're not going to you know, put you in jail. But of course, this is the one case where the Supreme Court where the lower courts, first of all, this is the one case where the lower courts would not screw with the Trump administration policy. And then the Supreme Court, of course, keeps the status quo and will not issue any sort of injunction, universal or otherwise. Of course, Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch dissented. Now, Alito, I don't know, to be fair, there are times when they just don't ask to be recorded as dissenting, but they might have been willing to take up the appeal, or in this case, grant an emergency stay, whatever you're asking for. And had there been four others, he would have been the fifth. I don't know. I can't prove that. I'm just saying it's been a little disturbing. If you just read some of his writing, has been a little bit mealy-mouthed for me. A little bit too mealy-mouthed. So that is something to keep an eye on.
But either way, I could tell you for sure, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, no, 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 no. They don't want to do anything. Now, it'd be one thing if they're like, look, we're not going to get involved in political disputes that the administration promulgates political rules. That's for Congress to deal with. But somehow, in the 50 other cases, when the lower courts put injunctions on administrative policies where they were actually lawful, and the harm of those injunctions, like we see with the border, were caused and induced irrevocable harm, suddenly then the Supreme Court is not for deference to the administration. And that's what you're seeing time and again, at least with Kavanaugh and Roberts, maybe sometimes Alito, maybe not, something we have to watch. But there's a very important lesson I want to posit from here. Maybe I'll write a column on this. But to me, this is the exact reason why Kavanaugh and Roberts should at least agree to get rid of the power of a lower court to issue universal injunctions and nationwide injunctions. Because if you notice, they like being passive. In this case, it benefited the the administration. If the lower courts decline to put an injunction, they will not. Now, much to the chagrin of conservatives, we would have rather seen that in this case. But if you notice, the Supreme Court's passive. If the lower courts don't put on an injunction, they won't put it on. If the lower courts put one on, they won't take it off. Okay? So my point is, This is why it is so important that the Trump administration refuse to comply with universal injunctions and say, look, that much is unconstitutional and force that to come before the Supreme Court. And if Kavanaugh and Roberts had any shred of intellectual honesty, even in their own game, oh, they don't want to look too conservative. If they were right, think about this. They could have their cake and eat it too. In other words, what do they want to do? They don't want to look like the Supreme Court is too active. So you could have your cake and eat it, do do the right thing, but then not have to get involved if you cut the head off at the snake. Just make it that all these cases will just apply to those plaintiffs, as it should. That is the judicial power. But not a universal injunction on an abstract policy like a veto. By doing that, there won't be a need for them to get involved because then it will have to be the other side kind of appealing to get a you know full injunction from the Supreme Court. By the way, not that I believe a Supreme Court could issue a universal injunction either. That's just me. Meaning there's two issues. There's the geographical thing. Meaning, again, let, let's just say, you know, I don't know. I, I, I come to a, a court and I say, I don't like Trump's drilling policies. Or, well, you know, let's talk about a different one. Um, I don't think he should have work requirements for Medicaid. All right, so I could say you don't have to work in order to get Medicaid. Now, ultimately, Medicaid, it takes funding, and the courts don't expend that. And it is absolutely the proper role of the other branches to push, push back and disagree. But I'm saying even without that, 
even without them pushing back, it should only apply to that guy. And if it's a district judge, it should just be within that district. Now, if there are plaintiffs, multiple plaintiffs outside of the district, so the Supreme Court could deal with that. But they cannot have it self, I, I mean, universally binding on non-plaintiffs. That's just not the judicial power. But anyway, my broader point here is, all they do have to do is give one good ruling. No nationwide injunctions, no universal injunctions, like Clarence Thomas wants to rule. And by the way, that would be facially neutral. It wouldn't even be pro-Trump because, you know, one day you're going to have a Democrat president and this is going to happen to him. And, you know, conservatives are going to go to courts and whatever, want to put on injunctions. So but just be neutral and then done. And then the impact of subsequent lower court opinions on fundamentally political cases will be much smaller. And then they could continue to be passive. That is really how Roberts and Kavanaugh would solve their own dilemma of how do you uphold the Constitution while also giving in to the left like they want to do. That's actually how to do it. Get rid of this universal injunction business, and you won't have to take up these cases. Or at least not expeditiously. That's the point I wanted to make. And by the way, one other thing on the courts, before we go on. Israel is having an election this week. Now, I think Netanyahu, the current prime minister, is likely to keep his premiership. My understanding of that, I mean, I haven't followed it that closely. But one of the things I did notice, it's very interesting. The current justice minister is running on a, on a, on a third party, which in itself is an important lesson to all of us. Not part of Netanyahu's governing party. And she's running an entire campaign fighting judicial supremacy thought it was very important. Very important lesson. Okay? And I saw an amazing quote from her. It's from IsraelNationalNews.com. Every person can stop every matter. She's talking about people, litigants in court, meaning every political matter. So the court deals with every issue and intervenes in matters of security and economics that it has no responsibility for. The court should settle disputes not run the state. I just found that to be an eerie quote watching what's going on in another country because that's exactly what's happening here. Courts are now settling security and economics, literally. Our border, single-handedly because of one guy named Dana Sabra. In San Diego, we now had a half a million people rush our border with no end in sight. Million, billions of dollars Funneled to the cartels as a result of it. Diseases brought in. Public charge. Our schools being flooded. Criminals. Our border patrol shut down so that in the frontier areas, the cartels, the smugglers could bring in the worst criminals imaginable. All because of one district judge. Frankly, it's worse than in Israel. Never forget reading um, Robert Bork's book about 15 years ago and he, and, he, and he warned that we're becoming like Israel 
with uh, judicial activism. And frankly, we're worse than Israel because I think what sh- what this justice minister was talking about there is the Supreme Court. Here we have it with the lower courts. So there's some- something interesting to watch, you know, as the week unfolds. Um, you actually have an entire party dedicated to fighting judicial supremacism there. That's so that it is so much why we need another party to move uh, to keep this party in line, so that when the Republican Party and the President Trump dangle a carrot in front of us, we could actually grab it, and it doesn't get yanked away from us. Because, folks, that is what always, always happens. But when you have another party in place, it keeps them in line. Same thing there. Netanyahu, you know, the media portrays him as this right-wing neo-Nazi, Jewish neo-Nazi guy, whatever. You know, the reality is he was very prone to caving. He's kind of like Newt Gingrich. When he's good, he's really good. He's like a statesman. But then he just kind of goes off sometimes and, you know, goes left out of nowhere. So, um... It's this other party. There are several other parties holding him in line, and that's really what we needed with the Republican Party. Otherwise, this whole thing is just a joke in perpetuity. You know, that's that that's a sad reality. Alrighty. Where do we move on from here? Where do we go? Um gosh, there's so many other things I didn't get to. But um Many of you have probably been wondering, and if you're not, you should be wondering, where is the Justice Department? We, we started off the show talking about Department of Homeland Security. But at the end of the day, Homeland Security deals with the logistics of the border. Okay? But this is not a logistical problem. It's not a resource problem at our border. The invasion is a lawfare. It's a legal invasion. So we need the Department of Justice to take the lead pushing back against the courts, giving the right legal advice. Why is it left to people like me doing that? If you remember, Jeff Sessions, when he was attorney general, he started to do this. He was canned. And we asked the question last week, why is it, why is it that the new attorney general, William Barr, seems to be more impotent than Bob Dole's you-know-what. Sorry, I had to stick that in there. But where is he in the scheme of things here? Have you heard from him? Well, folks, I'm here to tell you that we now have heard from him. We now know why we haven't heard much about the border. No, we don't have a crisis at our border. We don't have an invasion of our civilization. You see, folks, it's time for our sexual deviancy alphabet soup update. Q.
right, there you have it, folks. That is our new theme song for the Sexual Deviancy Alphabet Soup update of the day. So now, most of you know all of the letters of the alphabet, but there's only some that are important, but they are growing. Uh, give me an L. Give me a G. Give me a T. Oh, wait, I forgot one there. B. Uh, give me a Q. You cannot forget the Q, by the way. Folks, we have an update for you. And I promised it. I promised we would do it. And here we are. This is from the AP. Attorney General William Barr has ordered the FBI and the Bureau of Prisons to investigate allegations of discrimination against LGBTQ employees. He said in a letter released Friday, the announcement came in response to concerns from DOJ Pride, a group that represents thousands of LGBTQ employees at the Justice Department and its components and its component agencies. <laughs> Wait a minute, I'm trying to figure out how many people are at the Justice Department. Um, <laughs> Wait a minute. No, really, this is a serious question. I just thought of it. Well, I guess there are a lot, 113,000. So <laughs> there's thousands of – now, I don't know if they have in a spreadsheet, you know, delineated who's an L, who's a Q, and which type of Q. But, um, okay, so what's going on? The group's board of directors sent a letter to Barr last week that asked him to sign an equal employment opportunity statement and raise concerns from a survey of its members. The concerns included allegations that lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender agents – see, they forgot the Q – agents at the FBI Academy faced discrimination and different evaluation standards, as well as gay agents being dismissed from the Academy because they are not bro-y or masculine enough. I don't know what that is, uh, bro-y. Members said it is hard for gay men and transgender employees to work at the Bureau of Prisons, and the agency doesn't attract or retain them. Others were concerned the Justice Department is not as much of a welcoming, inclusive environment for LGBTQ employees as it once was, the letter said. Quote, given the crucial role the department fulfills in our society, enforcing the nation's laws and administering justice, we are concerned that so many employees who dedicate themselves to the department do not think the department values them or that it attracts the best and brightest of the LGBTQ community, the board member said. In a letter to the group, Barr said he was troubled by the concerns you raised about low morale and in particular about discrimination against LGBTQ employees. The attorney general ordered the FBI and Prisons Bureau to investigate and address the discrimination allegations and, quote, prevent it going forward. Barr also formally signed an equal employment opportunity policy, which is required by law, testing that Justice Department employees or job applicants can't be fired or denied employment because of their race, religion, national origin, sexual orientation, gender identity, or other factors. So there you have it, folks. The FBI. We're facing drugs, crime, gangs, terrorism. We have an invasion at our border, but we have the alphabet soup to take care of. Folks, that is our Justice Department here. Nothing changes in this administration. But I will tell you, you remember Jeff Sessions. He actually went after the homosexual agenda. He stood up for religious liberty. He stood up for our borders. And now we have a guy that is focusing on this when we have a border crisis. I've never heard him speak about it. Remember, Attorney General Barr was Attorney General in 1993, 
1992, under George H.W. Bush. Why is that important? Because that was the year that they shut off migration from Haiti and blocked asylum requests. And there was a Supreme Court case over it, and they won 8-1, to one, and that Supreme Court case has full bearing on what is going on today, and he could assert that opinion today. But no. You know, no one is concerned, somehow he doesn't seem concerned about the low morale in some of his agencies. The field agents in, in FBI that are sick of the politicization, including the sexual agenda of, this, of, of, of the FBI. What about the folks at the Drug Enforcement Administration? Good, good guys in the field there. Their leadership is broken beyond, beyond repair. Great agency, horrible leadership. Nope, they won't address our concerns. They will address the concerns of the alphabet soup. So the question is, why don't we get to join the alphabet soup? I mean, what about the low morale of Border Patrol, of ICE agents? What about low morale of Christians discriminated against in the workplace? What about the low morale and the discrimination against those of us who actually want to use the F- – who are employees of, let's say, FBI, DEA, Border Patrol, that want to follow the laws and do their jobs in the varying agencies pursuant to the laws passed by Congress? How about that, buddy? But no, we got the alphabet soup because nothing trumps the alphabet soup. And the twisted irony, the twisted irony of this attorney general focusing on the sexual alphabet soup at a time that he should be focusing on the border invasion is the fact that did you know the two issues actually merge? We now have – transgender chain migration at our border just like we have abortion chain migration so if you you might remember this last year we had cases of these teenage girls now coming from countries where they don't allow them to have elective abortions they come here to have abortions illegally so we're the dumping ground to murder babies Right, Either you could come here and force your baby on us against our will, and he's automatically a citizen, or you force us to kill the baby. No common sense of like, you know, you got to come here legally, and if you're not, we're not going to assist you in killing the baby, but we're not going to make him a citizen either. But you also have gay, transgender, whatever, chain migration as well, where a whole number of them, a bunch of women will travel together and say they're lesbians or something, and they fear persecution. Now, sometimes uh, you know it, it was real, but mo- most of the ones from Central America, it's just a scam. It's part of this whole scam to plead asylum. So, you know, if William Barr wants to focus on that issue, maybe you should do it with the b- border and shut down the asylum fraud. But that's just my opinion. Also, by the way, William Barr, despite the fact that in his prior career, he was always tough on crime. He promised to totally keep alive this criminal justice reform. So, so much for that. Um, anyway, I want to move on to another issue where the steak, the carrot, 
well, really a stake, is being dangled in front of us, and it's always pulled back on a string. Now, before we just get to that, I, ju I, I do want to say on a positive note, I think no matter what, the fact that you have such shakeups at DHS and ICE will keep this issue in the news, which is a good thing. We need to keep the border in the news. We cannot allow this to get swept under the rug for people not to, to focus on this. And also, I would imagine today the official border numbers will come out for the Southwest border for March. You know, the March official tally, it's going to be over 100,000 100, uh, migrants. So again, <clears throat> hopefully that is going to continue putting this at the forefront of the news cycle as we need it. But another issue that's being dangled in front of us, but we really cannot enjoy enduring ga gains, is the economic news. Last year, I put out a thesis built on, upon a question. Why is it that the employment market seems to be better than ever, but GDP growth doesn't seem to reflect that? And the point I made back then was it's the debt and what the debt reflects and represents. The misallocation of resources and all that dead weight on the economy going to service and invest in treasury bonds to go service essentially Democrat votes and dependency programs, that's an albatross around the economy. And that is why even though when we have a period of prosperity, our best times today are nowhere near where the best times were like in the late 90s and late 60s. If you look comparatively at any other period where we had this expansion in the employment market, you had massive GDP growth. Basically, you have now, we've been under 4% unemployment for about a year, like 12 months straight. We've been under 5% unemployment for about three years. Certainly the entirety of the Trump presidency. Last time we had this was the late 90s, late 60s. In the late 90s, we had 4% growth for four consecutive years in a row. Now we can't even get 3%. Last year we got 2.9, pretty close, but that's the best. And now it's it's cooling off. It is cooling off. If that's the best we can do, that's a problem because then you have, you know, the periods of downturns. We have not actualized a full calendar year of 3% growth since 2005. And haven't had a full calendar year of 4% growth since 2000. And my thesis is we're never going to hit it again. I mean, we could just about hit maybe 3%, but not a sustained period and certainly not 4%. And that is because of the debt. Late 60s, we had periods of 6.5% growth. That was my thesis. And I was proven right about that. Where am I coming from? Congressional Budget Office put out their analysis of the first half of the fiscal year, right? The end of March was six months into fiscal year 2019. We have accrued $693 billion in new deficits just in six months. 
That's more than the annual deficit was during the end years of Obama. Here's the interesting thing. We've spent 90 the deficit is 94 billion more just this year, the first 6 months of this year relative to the first 6 months of FY 2018. Guess where it's from? It's all from spending. Revenue is actually up 1%. Interestingly enough, individual and corporate income tax revenue obviously is down because of the tax cuts. But again, payroll taxes are up because more people are working. In part, we would argue, because of the tax cuts. So that's pretty good. But guess what? Spending is up 5% just this year. And you know what? Spending for the first six months of this year is up 13.7% relative to the final year of Obama. We thought that spending was unconscionable back then. 13.7% higher under Republicans. Out of control. The Republicans in their platform that they adopted at the 2016 convention, they said, quote, a strong economy is one key to debt reduction, but spending restraint is a necessary component that must be vigorously pursued. But guess what? This notion that you could grow your way out of debt is not true because here it is. You have the best, I mean, what is it? 3.7% unemployment, 3.8% unemployment, okay? There are now... 1.3 million fewer people unemployed than when Trump took office. About 5.6 million jobs have been created. Um, The labor participation rate is up. The employment population ratio is up, meaning the number of people employed relative to the working age population It's really at pre-recession levels. We're doing good. But this is the best we can do. Now we're back to like 2.2% growth. What people don't realize is you can't grow your way out of debt because the debt itself has become such an albatross that it inhibits the growth that you would need to grow yourself out of that debt. We are now in an interesting death spiral. A vicious cycle of more debt higher interest rates, which makes us even more, which creates even more debt, which raises the cost of interest on the debt, which makes us even more desperate to service it, which raises the cost of interest because it attracts, you know, there's more demand for it. The single, very interesting, the single fastest expenditure, fastest growing expenditure Relative to last year, you know, Social Security spending was up 5%. But it was the interest payments on the debt itself. They rose 13% over this time last year. That is money that is just going in the garbage, just straight up paying for the debt. That is going to kill us. And I would argue it is already killing us a big point that we've been making for a number of years but particularly recently where where I believe we, we've reached a, a breaking point is that the debt is not some futuristic thing that we're going to have to pay off the debt is hurting us right here right 
now. It is permanently causing a misallocation of resources. And then just without the debt, but what the debt represents, all these dependency programs, the regulatory scheme, Obamacare, healthcare is one-sixth of the economy. It's one big convoluted dumpster fire. It, our economy, even when it works good, it is so inefficient. It's so built upon arbitrary market distortions created by the government. Like I said in my analogy last year, it's kind of like my pin oak tree in my front yard where the previous owner just had someone top it off, just cut off the top, and it's permanently th- sick and problematic. But you know, every spring, it will rebloom again a little bit later than other trees more dead areas than other trees but it you know at the peak of it at its peak it does look decent it's not worth me getting rid of it but the peak is nowhere near what the peak should be and those peak periods get shorter and you know the weak looking periods of the tree get longer that's really what our economy has become look i'll take this past year of job market and even gdp growth but this is the best. Remember, it's kind of like you know, you go on a road trip, a couple hour road trip, and you have periods where you where the interstate goes into urban areas and traffic slows, and then you have periods that are you know in rural farm areas where there's very few cars on the road. It's in those periods that you really need to floor it in order to make up the time. Because you inevitably are going to have the tougher parts of your trip. It's the same thing here. We're going to have the recessions. We're going to have the stagnation. So in the periods of prosperity, you really need to be growing more, and we're not. Again, the debt, the way it works is we're so desperate to service it. We have to offer, rather than people investing in our goods and services, our, our manufacturing, factories, more capital, they put it into buying treasury ponds to create nothing more than Democrat dependency programs, which further get people off of work and disincentivize people to be more productive. So um, it's going to go up and up and up. But nobody's going to be talking about this today, of course, the debt. And obviously, we're going to get into immigration a lot more this week. It is going to be a big immigration week. But I wanted to make sure you guys understood this. For the first six months of this fiscal year, the debt is thir- the spending levels are 13.7% higher than under Obama's final year. That was my personal calculation. CBO didn't point that out, but it's just now that we have those numbers, I plugged it in. And another important thing is, I, I figured I'd take a look at the first six months of fiscal year 20, 2009. As you all know, that was at the, the total pit, the nadir of the re- Great Recession. That's when Obama had his porculous stimulus, all of his spending... All the surge of people on Medicaid, the surge of people on welfare, unemployment, benefits, food stamps. Right, That's the worst you're going to get in the economy. The first six months of fiscal year 2009. Spending was actually about $300 billion more for the first six months of this fiscal year than then. 
And this is the best job economy uh, by some measures we've had since the late 60s. I mean, that's what's so inexcusable. That's what's so unprecedented about these numbers. To have this much spending in a period of prosperity. But again, the period of prosperity, as I noted, is a little muted to what it should be, or a lot muted. But it still is a peak period. I mean, at least during 2009, it was a deep recession. Now, if you adjust for inflation, it has been a while. It has been about a decade. So it would be pretty close. If you adjust for inflation, it's about roughly the same spending. But still, that's insane that we would be at the same level as the worst recession in a period of 3.8% unemployment. That's just out of control. But you know what? The same way, a couple weeks ago, I said, will the last traditional social conservative turn the lights out? Well, I guess we have to say, will the last fiscal conservative turn the lights out? Anyway, folks, this is going to be a busy week. As always, we got you covered. Conservative Review, Blaze Media. Tune into the show. You can subscribe at Stitcher, obviously iTunes, anywhere where you get podcasts. Pass this around to five of your friends and relatives. We need to get the truth out. But in order to get the truth out, we got to get the right focus on the right issues. Don't get swept up into the sensational stories, the distractions, the little dangling of, of the stake in front of us. And then we don't even get it anyway. We think we got the Supreme Court. We don't have it. We think we have great economic growth. Well, not so much. The debt is worse than ever. Oh, we're going to fix immigration? Actually, it's worse than ever. We got to start accomplishing things, and we got to find the personnel and policies that are going to do this. That is our job here. We're going to come out with our border plan later this week. God bless you all. Thanks for listening. Till next time, this has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.